The Good Neighbor Network, FM 101.9 and AM 1450 Murfreesboro, FM 100.5 Smyrna, and online at WGNSRadio.com. This is a WGNS Action Line, talking with Rutherford County newsmakers about what matters most to you. Now your host, Scott Walker. Right now that time, 818, you're listening to WGNS on this Friday morning, today, October 21st. And joining us this morning live, we have Dr. Elise Helford, Director of Jewish and Holocaust Studies at MTSU, and Dr. Ashley Valenzuela. How are both of you guys doing this morning? Great, thank you. Why don't each of you tell us a little bit about your backgrounds and and what got you focused on Holocaust studies at MTSU? I'm Elise Helford and uh, I am a professor of English. I came to MTSU from Chicago and my interest in Holocaust studies uh, began when I probably was about 12. I'm Jewish and I grew up having to watch horrible videos and learn about the Holocaust from a very young age uh, through our local synagogue uh, and also from family and friends who talked about it. My family left Eastern Europe on, on both sides of my family before the Holocaust. They mostly came to the country around the turn of the 20th century. But it was always a part of my heritage that we had family we had left back there that we were no longer in touch with who probably did die during the Holocaust. And it was seen as a very important thing for Jewish American children to know. That said, apart from learning the most general facts of it, I didn't formally study it until I was in graduate school when I took a course that was co-taught by a rabbi and a priest at the University of Iowa and uh, Rabbi Jay Holstein, and I apologize, I've forgotten the priest's name, but it was primarily Jay Holstein's course, and he became famous for his amazing courses in Old Testament and his Holocaust Studies course that let me read particularly survivor literature and some accounts, resistance and rebellion during the Holocaust that I found very moving and powerful. And over time, I began to teach some of those books and read others uh, and teach them at MTSU. But when I joined MTSU pretty quickly, uh, several faculty came to me and asked me if I would be interested, knowing that I was Jewish American, came to me and asked if I'd be interested in joining their committee, which soon began to host conferences at MTSU. So my interest in teaching and research in Holocaust studies came over time. It wasn't my primary area of specialization. I didn't write my dissertation on it or anything like that, but I began to work with them on the conferences and over time I became increasingly interested while working with those fellow faculty members. Again, that was Dr. Helford and uh, Dr. Valenzuela. What about you? What what got you focused on the Holocaust studies? Thank you. Um, so I'm, a, I'm an assistant professor in the history department. So I uh, have been at MTSU now for two years, but my original, I don't have family um, connections to the Holocaust, but I discovered and started researching the Holocaust after reading um, a couple survivor accounts through my graduate training early on. And I'm also a specialist in uh, modern France. And that led me to want to look in greater depth into the stories of um, female Holocaust survivors in France and how they grappled with the trauma they experienced during the war, 
and rebuilt their lives in the aftermath of the Holocaust, all while remaining in France. So that, that those survivor accounts I encountered very early on uh, led me to study the Holocaust and general contemporary relevance kind of drives me to keep going, right? The prevalence of anti-Semitism today, defacement of Holocaust memorials worldwide, those contemporary issues kind of fuel my uh, desire to keep researching and leaving an impact in the field itself. And I'm like Elise, um, I'm also involved with the Holocaust Studies program through the conference uh, at MTSU, and I teach several courses on the Holocaust to both upper division history majors, the Jewish Holocaust Studies minors. Like this semester, for example, I have a course on uh, Holocaust memory and justice. I'm curious, in today's times throughout high schools here locally, how much is actually taught on the Holocaust? And, and I'm sure MTSU has involvement in some classes within the county. How much is actually taught to students today? My experience with this is in part by having a son who went through the K-12 through system in Murfreesboro. What I discovered is that the students are given information and they do read and screen films about the Holocaust. So it is not left out of the curriculum in Tennessee. What I can say is that there's a mandate for Tennessee. It's one of the states that requires Holocaust education in K through 12, uh, usually in middle school and high school students study the Holocaust, but that it is largely taught without adequate context. So, for example, my son read Elie Wiesel, the Nobel Peace Prize winner and Holocaust survivor and theologian and philosopher, Elie Wiesel. They read his book, Night, which is a very brief, like maybe 100 pages, narrative of his experiences in the concentration camp Auschwitz. And so the students do read it. But they read it in an English class rather than a history type classroom. And they read it largely without context. And it's something like, we will now read The Great Gatsby. We will now read Elie Wiesel's Night. We will now read To Kill a Mockingbird. We will now read Romeo and Juliet. And the teachers lack the time to develop, say, a full, what you might call a a lesson, a module, a unit where they might screen a documentary that gives them an introduction to the Holocaust or an introduction to anti-Semitism in the Holocaust or things like that that would contextualize the study so that they know more fully what they're studying and what the context is. At the middle school level, they might, I know my son screened the film The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, again, without a great deal of context. Back in the day, I would say in the 90s through the er, through the maybe the 2000s, students would have someone come in and give them an introduction. Um, I even did one, but I, I have to say it probably was eight to 10 years ago that I was brought into a fifth grade classroom and they had all the kids come and sit on the floor in the room and they asked me to do an introduction for them. And I guess that was in preparation for watching something like The Boy in the Striped Pajamas. And I did so with slides that I was very careful what to show them to make sure that they were age appropriate, but to give them a little bit of that background and then to ask them questions about what they knew and what questions they had at that age. And we offer that through MTSU. If teachers want to contact us, we will try and help them get someone between us and the Tennessee Holocaust Commission. We will help them find someone to help bring that material or the Jewish Federation of Nashville, but they don't have the time. There's so much focus 
you know, I don't want to soapbox too much, but there's so much focus on testing and getting students prepared for certain kinds of basics that they don't get it. The only place they would get it, and Ashley may know more about this, although she's relatively new to Murfreesboro, and I've been here for about 30 years now, they, they, um, they could get it in a social studies class, a class they can take optional world history type classes in high school, but they're all optional. So that's my knowledge of it today. I know some schools, in fact, Middle Tennessee Christian School as an example, which is a private school here in Murfreesboro, and they may still do this, but I remember they used to, every single year, have a Holocaust survivor come in and speak to the students, the high schoolers, and Things like that, where you have a guest speaker who survived the Holocaust, you know, it would be, I guess they would have been a child at the time when the Holocaust occurred. But hearing firsthand stories is something that I think teaches and provides lessons that books simply cannot do. The other interesting side about that is every Holocaust survivor, no matter the age, they have a different story to tell. I think that's something fascinating that MTSU does a good job in highlighting is that at the recent studies event that came to MTSU not too long ago, you had different survivors who told their story. And those stories, I guess, kind of give us an idea of what things one person experienced and and something that another person never even saw. That's absolutely true. And we do, we bring a survivor as much as we can to every conference. Of course, there are very few left living at this point. And yes, you are dealing with people who are very much young children at this point. Ben Lesser, who is a survivor who spoke at MTSU several times at our conferences, uh, including um, having events at, uh, we had, we've had several events at Central in Murfreesboro. It's just down the street from the campus so that if we have a conference during the day, we would have a speak. We've had a speaker there in the evening, and Ben Lesser just turned 94 yesterday. He's one who's an, who was a teenager during the Holocaust, as Elie Wiesel was, and there are fewer of them left living at this point. So yes, I do agree that meeting them in person makes a very big difference. When we had Eva Kaur at Central, I think that was 2017, that room was so packed she had to have children come and sit around her on the stage so we could fit more people in and parents brought their children and we open those events to the public so that people can meet them that will be increasingly difficult that'll be an increasing challenge uh, and every effort is being made to at least record survivors on video i had an experience when i visited the illinois holocaust museum Uh, They had a virtual reality experience where you are taken on a tour of one of the camps by a survivor, and that virtual reality did make it a little bit more real, obviously, than reading a book. There are numerous documentaries. Ashley, go ahead, and if you want to add to that. Yeah, I I agree that hearing firsthand the account of a survivor is what's really going to resonate with students. I can remember my first time um, hearing from a survivor when I was an undergraduate, and to add to what Elise said, you know, we have this this problem now where we have so few survivors that, you know, they're, they were quite young during the war that can come to speak to students. And so, you know, there are kind of two avenues where we're going from here. So actually yesterday, um, I took my students on a field trip to Nashville and we met with a woman who is a descendant of survivors who gave us a tour of the Nashville Holocaust Memorial. 
telling her parents' story, which it was very impactful for the students there. And we also recently acquired at MTSU the Fortune Off Audiovisual Survivor Testimony Database. It's sponsored through Yale University. And it's thousands of recorded survivor testimonies that students can now log in and listen to, use for their research, but also connect with through their classes. So there'll be other resources we have available to us. Just have to approach them through creative ways so that students can still hear these stories as the last survivors do pass away. And again with us this morning, Drs. Valenzuela and Helford from MTSU. And we're talking about the Holocaust and the Holocaust studies the program at MTSU, you know, I I recall when I was younger, and this would have been in the mid-90s, my first visit to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., and of course that, I think, first opened in 93. But it was that experience, seeing firsthand just different views and sights that others experienced while being held captive, that's what opened my eyes to, to get a better understanding of how serious, how grim, how scary all of this was way back then. And I think what really hit home were the stacks of shoes they had in the museum that belonged to those who were who were part of the Holocaust. The sheer number of those who died is something that I don't think you can fathom just by listening to a story about it. Tell us a little bit more about some of the, the facts and figures of the actual Holocaust. That's a big, broad question. I feel like as a historian, I need all my my references here for facts and figures. It's grappling with, like you mentioned, we're talking very much about individual stories, survivors and connections with them. But it's also then having students and just for our general understanding of the Holocaust grapple with scale. And that, I think, is one of the hardest things to come to understand because the Holocaust, and this is something we touched upon in our latest conference, was global in a sense and and how many people it impacted and where it impacted people. So, you know, starting with the persecution of of German Jews and growing from there um, to Jews all across Nazi occupied Europe, some of the other former colonies were targeted like in North Africa, for example. But as for numbers, and I always hesitate to say this, you're looking at scales of millions, over six million uh, European Jews killed by Nazis, their collaborators and allies during the war itself. I don't know if Elisa wants to be uh, more specific than that, but it, it really depends drastically um, whether you're looking at, you know, the, the loss that occurred in Poland from Eastern Europe all the way to Western Europe, France, um, Italy, for example, even, you know, smaller community, Jewish communities in Greece that were touched by it. I don't think most people understand how widespread the Holocaust was. I mean, you're talking about multiple locations of just, well, sadness. Even Russia, where those who were Jewish were were driven out. I mean, it's so widespread that, well, it's just, it's not taught in schools how widespread the Holocaust was. Some of this stuff is based on who researched it and when. So you've got that number six million, which is impossible to, I think, take in. It's become very famous, as you said, like the piles of shoes or train cars. You have these symbols and that number six million is a symbol that is very difficult to parse. One of the things that I do to kind of break that kind of thing down is so you take Poland in which three million Jews were killed. That was where the largest number of European Jews lived. 
if two thirds of those are gone, one of the things you can do in a classroom is say, okay, let's look at this classroom of however many students. So, uh, and then you say, two thirds of you are gone. So if the room is split up into these groups, 10 out of the 15 of you, now class is just these five students. Those kinds of things at times can help people, percentages can help people to make it a little bit more real in their lives to envision, you know, uh, who's disappearing, the complexities of how those numbers came to disappear and how those people were killed is another really important part of the story. You have to industrialize slaughter. So you may begin with pulling people out of their homes and shooting them, but you're not going to kill millions of people without what I think are some of the most famous uh, images for people, which are um, gas chambers and crematoria. You have to put thousands of people per day through. And that's, again, something that's very difficult to break down enough for for people to envision it really happening. Making it real through the individual stories while working with the numbers is important. Uh, the other thing I find very important is to distinguish groups of people and, and how it was handled. So the Nazis didn't just start by saying, okay, now Hitler has wrangled his way into power and everybody voted for him, but a third of Germans voted Hitler into a coalition government and he was felt to be the best leader and that his extreme views could be handled, could be controlled. And so Hitler had staged an event that would allow him to put the country under lockdown and he would take full control. And so that authoritarianism gave additional power. Then certain rules and things within Germany. Well, what we want to do is produce the healthiest and strongest population. And so let's see what happens was the attitude taken of taking small steps and getting bigger and bigger with them and bolder and bolder. What will other Germans say? What will the world say? And so they begin by sterilizing and euthanizing the physically and mentally ill among their population. So everyone will be healthy. We can't, we're also dealing with a, a global depression. So what can we do and what can we get away with? And certain, uh, eventually people started recognizing that. So it goes underground or it becomes quieter. And all of this went step by step. So we're going to take the Jewish people, we're going to say, you're too assimilated. Jews were only 1% of the German population, but we're going to move you all to certain areas. You're not going to be mixed in with the population. And then we're going to put fences around those areas. And then we're going to bring more people in from the countryside to live in those areas. So if that makes sense, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but the, the Nazis did things step by step, and that gets people to not rebel, to not become fully aware of what's happening while other plans are going on uh, where you eventually get to Auschwitz. It doesn't go from Hitler to Auschwitz. Yeah. Uh, the, the death camps start in, the, in uh, 41, 1941, and Hitler's in power in 33, and the Nuremberg laws that deal with what they called racial categories, right? It's not that the Jews don't believe in Jesus. That is not the problem for the Nazis. Uh, they are seen as almost an existential evil. They are both simultaneously the worst communists and the worst capitalists. They're stealing all your money, 
They made us lose World War One, and they're going to create a revolution in this country that's going to destroy your lives. They're going to take over the world. But I do want to just quickly add the the Nazis begin with non-Jews, and they continue with this. Jews aren't, from what, uh, what I've read, 95% of the victims. But in addition to them are other people. Hitler begins with the first camp in Germany, Dachau, with political dissidents. Anyone who's going to disagree with him, go to prison. And they make these camps to put people who don't agree with Hitler's policies. And that means if you're a very vocal Christian leader, a minister, a priest, and you're speaking against Hitler, put you in there. And outsiders, people who don't fit into society. So that would be people like the Romani, or that we used to call gypsies. They don't fit. Uh, They're deemed racially inferior as well. They're put into camps. Jehovah's Witnesses, who put God over Hitler and won't serve in the military because they're pacifists. Eventually, they are put in camps or uh, have their children taken away from them or are sterilized. So the Jews are the primary target, but they're not the only target. So when we talk about the six million, that comes in large part because you have in this country such an active Jewish American population, even though worried about standing out too much, you get that awareness brought to that number because they are the largest population by far and also and targeted for death for extermination every single jew in the world and because of that industrialization of the killing um, you you have that number brought before people at all times Again, with us this morning, Dr. Elise Helford and Dr. Ashley Valenzola. And Dr. Helford, the way you painted that picture, it's scary to think about everything that did occur and the timeline starting in 1933, the calculated timeline of how the Nazi regime slowly put into place all these different methods of getting rid of different parts of the population. It's so scary to hear about and to imagine. And that number of 6 million, for anybody who's lived in Tennessee for the last few years, Tennessee's population was right at that 6 million mark in about 2010. If you can imagine the entire state of Tennessee, everybody who lives here being completely wiped out, will give you a better idea of that 6 million number. Now, Now that we're you know, in 2022, that population counts closer to 7 million, but not far off from that 6 million mark. And, and that's, that's the number we're talking about when it comes to that period of the Nazis having that control and literally wiping out entire families, kids, and so forth. And this went on for a lengthy period of time, but it is really hard to come to grips with all the different figures, the facts, the data, it's hard to understand it because it's hard to understand a mind like like Hitler, for example. We got to take a short break, but we will be right back. And you're listening to WGNS again with us today, Dr. Elise Helford and Ashley, Dr. Ashley Valenzola with MTSU. And we're talking about the Holocaust and also the Holocaust Studies Program at MTSU. We will be right back in just a second. Again, you're listening to The Action Line on WGNS. 
To make buying Michelin tires simpler, I'm Allison Mitchell with Bud's Tire Pros. We offer a straightforward approach to service, including nationwide warranties with every purchase. Stop in today to see our full lineup of Michelin and BF Goodrich tires. For whatever you drive, Michelin and BF Goodrich have a tire to fit any need. Bud's Tire Pros, hassle-free, guaranteed. We're located on East Main Street, exactly three miles from the town square, one mile past Rutherford Boulevard. Visit us online at BudsTireProsTN.com. Oh, this is Amanda from Animal City inviting your family to come do business with my family. All of us at Animal City would like to say thank you to the Murfreesboro and surrounding communities for supporting this family-owned business for 32 years. When you come see us, make sure to check out our two full floors full of great pets and supplies to keep them happy and healthy. Animal City for your dog, cat, reptile, bird, and much, much more. Animal City, 919 Northwest Broad Street in Murfreesboro. By growing up in the restaurant business and being always around it, it was just something that was just second nature to me. I didn't realize the amount of work that was involved in it. I, I didn't understand and appreciate all that my parents sacrificed in order to provide for us. And now I'm very thankful and, I, and I'm very appreciative of the foundation that they laid for me so we could teach others to create what they have done to make it more of a legacy than just a passing of the torch. This is Peter Demas inviting you to enjoy a meal with our family at Demas's Restaurant. Good morning. We still see some heavy traffic volume, but at least it's moving on 24 westbound, leaving Rutherford County headed towards Davidson up through the Hickory Hollow area. 41 got a little bit busy a few minutes ago between Laverne and Smyrna. Over in Williamson County, it's still a mess on 65 northbound in the Spring Hill area as they try to clear up a crash. It's got the interstate just limping along big time over there. Ober Gatlinburg Restaurant and Lounge celebrating Oktoberfest. Check out all the fun details by logging on to obergatlinburg.com. I'm Commander Chuck with your on-time traffic. This is local music musician Elaine Winters, and I'd invite you to Stones River Battlefield for a special event October 22nd. The special program will begin at 10 o'clock with a cannon firing, followed by a music program at 11 by the Home Sweet Home Band. The Action Line on FM 101.9 and AM 1450 Murfreesboro, FM 100.5 Smyrna, and streaming at WGNSRadio.com. Time right now, 8.47. You're tuned to WGNS on the air since 1947. And this morning, our guests include Dr. Elise Helford and Dr. Ashley Valenzola from MTSU. And once more, we've been talking about the Holocaust and the impact of the Holocaust. And, and when it comes to the impact of the Holocaust, it is an impact that obviously can still be felt today because you're talking about the end of some families that, you know, the brother was killed, the sister was killed, the parents were killed. I mean, it literally wiped out generations. Kind of tell us more about that and, and how that impact is still felt today, really worldwide and, and in the U.S. That's a great question. And it you can look at it in a variety of different ways, thinking about how and where uh, Jewish communities exist now in the world, the United States. As even though we know, I don't know if anybody's been watching the recent Ken Burns documentary um, on the Holocaust, but uh, U.S. immigration policies were restrictive. But at the same time, there were a large number of Holocaust survivors who came to the United States after the war. You have Holocaust survivors moving to South America, to Australia, to other places outside what used to be the hub of Jewish life in Eastern Europe. That's just talking about immigration post-war. But I think 
more interesting to look at is the impact on individuals right, and, and families and how they were reconstituted, how individuals grappled with loss and trauma in the aftermath of the Holocaust, and how it continues to shape not only individual lives, but societies today and how they face either complicity or perpetration in the Holocaust or how they have grown like Israel to accommodate large number of survivors in this sense. And it's you know, the, there's, of course, for the survivors, they're living with the trauma they experienced during the war, but you also have these stories passed down to descendants. Um, you have a heavy burden knowing what their parents or grandparents endured, and it's very much still a large portion of their life and, and how they face different situations in the world. And at the same time, you have de descendants of perpetrators, descendants um, living in, in Germany and in other parts of Europe who weren't sure what their grandparents' role was in the war, trying to come to terms with that burden of guilt and, and what to do with that going forward. So you see as a response to this, you know, why? what are some of the ways that the, the Holocaust can still be seen or felt in our society today? And I mentioned the Nashville Holocaust Memorial, which states, you know, it, it was built for and by um, a large number of German, but also Polish, French, Belgian, and several other Jewish immigrants who came and were welcomed in Nashville, either just before the war or even in the early, early stages of the war. And they're memorializing their family members in physical form here, you know, in, in communities close to, to Murfreesboro. And in, in this sense, you know, you mentioned also the Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C., and institutions that are also working um, to make sure that what happened during the Holocaust is never forgotten, to engage with, you know, what's going on the world in the world regarding other genocides that have taken place since the Holocaust, and pairing that with, a, a, you know, a contemporary education for the public, but contemporary activism that constantly is here to remind us that anti-Semitism didn't end when the war and the Holocaust was over, in that sense. Right now, when you look at the entire world, Israel has the highest Jewish population, I think 6.3 million plus. Well, I guess, first of all, does Israel have the highest Jewish population today? I have to check the numbers on that. I, know, I, I say... don't know the numbers on that. It, it seems logically that that would be true. Um, one of the things you have with Jewish populations, say, say in the U.S., for example, is a lot of what, what Jews call marrying out, which is interfaith marriages where the Jewishness fades in terms of the practice of the family. Uh, and so in the U.S., when Jews came over here before the Holocaust, they if we're talking again about European Jews, or the word for that is Ashkenazi, which is the Yiddish word for Germany, but these European Jews that came to America came to escape oppression they were already facing, um, government-sanctioned burnings, lootings, killings, rape, uh, double taxing, being able to only live in certain areas, things like that. So they came over to this country to escape that, knowing they had the freedom to practice their religion in the United States, but also knowing they were going to have to compromise. And the Jews that came before the early 20th century, so that came from countries like Germany, Central Europe, if I've got to work on the Sabbath, which for Jews is Friday sundown to Saturday sundown, not Sunday as it is for Christians, if they've got to work on Saturday, they'll work on Saturday. If they can't get kosher food, they'll do the best they can. That kind of compromise and assimilation, enculturation into American norms, meant that some uh, that they could practice 
their faith at home, but they had to assimilate, uh, led over time to the development of what's called the reform movement in America, the reform Judaism, which is the most, whatever you want to call it, the least pious, least observant form of, of Judaism, and or to secular Judaism, meaning, you know, I would just call that more like an ethnicity, being Jewish American. And the numbers of Jews in America has gone down in part because of this assimilation just over time of not insisting on one's religion or interfaith. I often get students who say one of my parents is Jewish and the other isn't, but I wasn't raised Jewish. I was raised Christian or I was raised without uh, organized religion or that kind of thing. And so those numbers um, are different than a country like Israel where uh, you have you have a secular government, but you have a great deal more religious practice in daily life. If you want to get married in Israel, it is a religious ceremony. That kind of thing can make a big difference in terms of how we're calculating numbers. Uh, that also happened with Holocaust survivors. You had those who felt that the Holocaust was a test of faith and became more religious, but you had a great number who said, well, if this can happen, maybe there is no God and lost their faith entirely. And that also depended on, you know, as Ashley was saying, where they went in the world um, and how they were treated. Everyone in Israel knows a Holocaust survivor. And that is not the case in the U.S. As sometimes it is. Uh, it, isn't the it can be the case in certain cities, big cities in the U.S. that have large Jewish populations. So New York, Chicago. We are up against the clock, so we are out of time already. But as we close this morning, that word you mentioned, freedom, here in America, because those who grew up in America, who live in America today, because we have freedom, I think that's a word that makes it even harder to understand the Holocaust. But for anybody who wants to learn more about the Holocaust, obviously one of the places they can go would be the MTSU website because there is a lot of information. And I guess the easiest thing to do would be to search MTSU Studies Holocaust. Definitely thank you both for joining us. And we ought to do this yeah, again can soon. I, can I just quickly sure. add, um, we have a Facebook group now. So search MTSU Holocaust Studies on Facebook. And please join our Facebook group where we'll announce anytime we have a speaker. These events will always be open to the public. We bring in survivors. We bring in scholars and we may bring in films or things like that and the public is always welcome at these events sounds great and we will post a link to that whenever we post this podcast on the wgns website as well but again with us this morning dr elise helford and dr ashley valenzola talking about the holocaust let's uh, definitely do this again soon but thank you both for joining us thank you you're very welcome thank you and please keep your eyes open and fight anti-Semitism and other forms of oppression wherever you see them. You're listening to WGNS, your good neighbor station. Stay with us. We do have more news, more information coming up. Stickers, labels. We do a lot of direct mail, booklets, manuals, programs. My name is Jeff Carlton. I handle sales and marketing for Franklin's Print Works here at Murfreesboro. We are at 2227 South Park Drive. Franklin's Print Works has been in Murfreesboro for over 25 years. We are a full-service commercial printer. We offer everything from business cards to brochures, booklets to banners, everything in between. Our website is franklinsprinting.org. Hi, I'm Larry Castelli, and I love living at Adams Place. It's very friendly. Everyone here seems to want to make friends and be your friend. And the staff is fabulous. 
Betsy, who is the director of activities, is fabulous. She's always having something going on. We have music at least once a week, wine and cheese, and there's all sorts of different type of activities. I would highly recommend Adam's Place. Listen live to WGNS Radio on our website, and Alexa, or Google devices. Search WGNS Radio for on-demand podcasts in iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Plus, we have direct links to podcasts at WGNSRadio.com.